Amen. Okay, so um, if, you, if you did not get an, uh, a handout to go with your outline, grab one of those. They're right over there next to each other. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that in just a little bit. We won't read through it all in class, but uh, periodically, I haven't done it too much, but periodically I'll hand these, these articles out. Um, that is copyrighted material. I have a subscription for five bucks a month to Galaxy Software. It's an, on, it's an online um, archive basically a searchable interactive archive uh, that you can search theological journals. And so um, if there's somebody out there that's done a very good job of explaining something or of kind of covering all the bases and possibilities, rather than take up an entire class with a particular discussion, you know, we may have one of these, one of these articles for you to take back and read. I try not to, you know, some of those articles you find, they're like 20, 30 pages long. I try not to print off all of those. So, and also this outline, or this, uh, this article is not going to be available for download from the website just because <laughs> of copyrighted material. It's, it's, it, but all the information's up at the top. You can probably find it online. Or if you know, if you, it's like seriously, five bucks a month, depending on how much reading you do and how much research you do, uh, it may be worth it to, to, to get a subscription. And you can, you know, if you have a paid subscription, you can download the articles and, and, and read those for, you know, like I said, five bucks a month. It's, it's, it works out well for me, um, but it's just a recommendation for you. So if you've got your Bibles open to Revelation 11, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Revelation 11, 1 through 14. And I just want to start off with verses 1 through 6 here. It says this, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceed out of their mouth, proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over the waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will. We'll stop reading right there. So these are two individuals that uh, we've not seen before. They're going to have apparently a worldwide ministry, and that's going to uh, constitute the bulk of our study today. But first we want to notice here, number one there on your outline, it says we must notice the special work of John and the two supernatural witnesses. Their special work. In verses 1 through 6 that we just... Uh, read there. It says the special task of measuring went to John. The special task of measuring went to John. John was told to measure the temple. And obviously this, we're probably talking about the tribulation period temple. Um, and so there was, there was a temple. They had the tabernacle in the wilderness that moved around with them when they got settled and set up in Israel after a while. Uh, David made preparations. His son Solomon built the temple and that was the first temple uh, that was destroyed with the Babylonian captivity. They came out of Babylon and they built the second temple. 
And so um, that, that phrase there, second temple, defines an entire period from the time returning to the exile or from exile in Babylon all the way up to really through the time of Christ until its destruction in around A.D. 70. And that is called the second temple period of Jewish history. Um, but so there will be another temple built before or during the reign of Antichrist in which the Jews will be able to offer their sacrifices and have their temple worship at Jerusalem, which they currently cannot do right now. I just bought a book by Jay Seculo. I'm looking forward to reading. Um, I'll let you know how that turns out later. But Yeah, yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. And also uh, founder and president of uh, the uh, American Center for Law and Justice. Great organization. Um, now... But uh, the special task of measuring went to John. It says, the use of a reed for measuring is not unique to Revelation. It's not unique to Revelation. It was you know, kind of a standard thing, um, kind of probably maybe about a, a, a 10-foot reed, some commentators think. And um, as, we, you know, as we read it, it, we see that Ezekiel was given a similar command, and you can find that in Ezekiel 40, verses 3 through 4. But Ezekiel was told to, to measure. Uh, Zechariah saw Jerusalem measured in a similar way in Zechariah 2, verses 1 and 2. But there's a reed. It's just sent to measure. And God is always measuring things. You know, he, he talks about how meeting out the water in the oceans in the palm of his hands. You know, he talks about... Um, setting a compass in the earth that is talking about probably essentially gravity the creation of gravity which congeals and and draws together matter in spherical form in space Uh, he's he measures the temple he measures he measures people and we see john do that here but god measures rulers we see that in daniel's prophecy where uh, King Belshazzar was told, you've been weighed and found wanting, and I'm going to take the kingdom away from you right now. God's measurements are always according to his standard, and John here is told to measure that temple. But only the inner portion. Number two there says John was to measure only the inner portion of the temple. Just that inner portion. Now the outer portions and Jerusalem itself were given or to be given over to God's enemies. For the last half of the tribulation period. We'll get more into that in just a little bit when we talk about the witnesses. But um, if we go over and, and look at Luke 21, 24. Luke 21, 24. Jesus makes a reference to this. And he says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And so uh, there's, you, this, this is kind of even happening right now. There's a fulfillment in A.D. 70 with, uh, the, the, when, when, when Rome threw them out of, of Jerusalem. Again, A.D. 135, the Bar Kokhba revolt. Uh, they tried again, basically, and failed. But here we see that Jerusalem uh, and apparently the outer courts are going to be trodden under by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be complete. Basically, there's a period in Scripture where God is no longer dealing with Israel. Probably starting at the Babylonian captivity 
And they came out and they're kind of restored there. We understand that. But as far as a major world power, you're not going to see it until after the close of the tribulation period. That, that the times of the Gentiles have their culmination with the rule and reign of Antichrist. By the way, so does the dispensation of human government. We see that after the flood, God commanded, he put civil government in place. If any man shed another man's blood, his blood will be required. So that is God's uh, institution there, giving human government or civil government a sword. And since then, we've seen many different kinds of government take many different forms throughout the ages. But running, you know, kind of all down through history, we've seen world leaders great and small and the greatest, the most terrible and the most immoral will be Antichrist. And when Antichrist's reign comes to an end, then we have pretty much a direct theocracy in which Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth for a thousand years. After that, there's a final revolt and then um, eternity. (laughs) So we have basically a situation where human government is sort of progressing in its control over people and, and will have the greatest control during, during the times of Antichrist. And there are wonderful things that are like, like our country is, is very unique. We've had a level of freedom here that's really not been had in any other point in history. Lots of folks think that, well, we got our ideas for democracy from the Greeks. And the, you know, no, 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 we, we really didn't. Those were biblical ideas. The Greek democracy was a direct democracy in which every citizen got a vote. But the government was all up in everybody's business. Worship in this particular temple or that was a matter of law. And if you didn't do it, you got arrested or you got some kind of persecution, some sort of judgment there. So, you know, it was essentially the tyranny of the majority. In which case, anybody that doesn't have a popular opinion uh, has no freedom. Okay? This country changed all of that. You know, if you want, if you want to uh, get a really good book about that, not that, I would, not that I would endorse everything that's in it, but uh, get Dinesh D'Souza's book, What's So Great About Christianity. He does a very good job of annotating and documenting how biblical Christianity is basically responsible and is the foundation for our entire Western civilization and is responsible for many of the freedoms and, uh, of men and women. Freedom from slavery goes into all that. Does a good job overall. But this last half of the tribulation period, we're looking at Jerusalem being trodden underfoot. It's also, you can see it there, Revelation 13, 5. But the times of the Gentiles have to be fulfilled. A letter B there in your outline, John was marking off that which God claimed as his own. He said, just, just the inner temple, the, that, that inner portion. You know, Gentiles were not permitted. They had a court, the court of the Gentiles. They could be in the outer portions of the temple, but Gentiles could not go into the inner portions. As a matter of fact, the priests were the, uh, the ones who were allowed in the, in the innermost portions. But MacArthur writes here, uh, but John's measuring is better understood as signifying ownership, defining the parameters of God's possessions. He says, compare uh, Revelation 21, 15 with Zechariah 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's go ahead and do that real quick. We'll grab uh, 21 and verse 15. It says this, And he talked with me, and he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof 
and the wall thereof. So there he's, there's a golden reed that he's given to measure there. Zechariah back here in Zechariah 2. Zechariah is, a, is another interesting book that uh, we could study. As soon as I can get there. Zechariah 2. Zechariah 2 here, verses 1 through 5. I lifted up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof, and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, for a multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, uh, for I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall, a wall of fire, round about. <laughs> my, my eyes jump down to the next verse. We're going to finish this one. Sorry. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire, round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. So there's, there's a measuring. God's measuring out Jerusalem for his own. God's measuring out a portion of the temple here for his own. And uh, he says, this is what I'm claiming. But this measuring is significant, or I'm sorry, is signified something good. It signifies something good, since what was not measured was evil. So there's a, a distinction there that he makes. John was also told to measure the worshipers in the temple. The worshipers themselves are supposed to be measured. Now, God's measuring things that are his, that he's claiming. If we're measuring the temple, uh, the temple worshipers, who's going to measure up? You know, you've got this, you've got John, he's got this reed in his hand. Who's going to meet the divine standard? God measures everything, has knowledge of everything. Comparing things with, with his own standard. How would, we, how would we look today in our church if we were measured in this, in this particular manner? How, what would you think about that? God is measuring your life. Now, we have righteousness in Christ, but he's measuring our works. He's measuring us. Everything that we do here is going to be measured at the judgment seat of Christ, measured by how well it withstands the fire of his judgment upon our works, not to see whether we're worthy to enter into heaven, uh, but to see the worth of our works. Very interested in that. Letter B, the special task of testifying went to the witnesses. Special task of testifying. So John just, he said, John, you get to measure the temple and the worshipers therein. You know, we, we typically think of John, actually, I, I, as the apostle of love. Could it be that God is measuring the love of the worshipers? Well, that would really tell us a lot in this particular day and age that we're talking about the tribulation period, because what's the judgment of Christ upon the Gentiles uh, that, are, that, are, that, that are in the earth? And upon the Jews, too. Did you, did you love me? Did you follow my commands? Did you treat my, my brethren, these Jews, well? 
Did you, uh, do, did you love me well? But the special task of testifying went to the witnesses. Now, number one in her letter B, the identity of the witnesses is the source of great debate and lively discussion. So you see handout, the two witnesses of Revelation 11. This is, uh, is an article uh, out of Bibliotheca Sacra in 1977. I'm sorry, 1997. <laughs> By Daniel K. Wong. And uh, Mr. Wong does a very good deal uh, here. With, he deals very well with the identity of the two witnesses. He talks about the different viewpoints, symbolic interpretations, corporate interpretations by that. Do they symbolize all believers? Uh, do they symbolize a group of people? Literal interpretations. And then he talks about the preferred interpretation uh, as he sees it. Now, I, I may not endorse every idea that we find here, obviously, in the article, uh, but he does a wonderful job of discussing who these witnesses are. You know, what do, we, what do we think of when it talks about the witnesses and the things that they'll do? We know that, first of all, they're indestructible until God says they've served their purpose. So folks are going to try to kill these people. Nothing is going to work, and not only will they not be able to be destroyed, uh, but it says that they'll um, destroy those who try to destroy them with fire out of their mouth. You know, so, um, and then not only that, but he says that they'll be able to shut up the rain in heaven so that it doesn't rain, they will smite the earth with all the plagues. And not only will they smite the earth with all the... Think about, think about the last time we saw anybody smiting the earth with plagues, it was, it, you know, Moses. Moses smote Egypt with plagues. Now, Moses was told by God what to do and where to go. These gentlemen here, whoever they are, they're going to be able to smite however they want, whenever they want. That's some serious freedom. You know, go around and, you know, and because uh, basically it's, it's the outpouring of God's judgment. He says as often as they will, as often as they want to. So who are they? You know, a lot of folks, if we think about um, what scripture says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after, after this the judgment. Well, uh, lots of folks think that there's really only two people ever gone to heaven without death. One was Enoch and another was Elijah. So if everybody has to die once, maybe these guys are coming back in some sort of a form and they'll be the ones that are, that are you know, carrying out these judgments. And that's got its merits. But, but here's the thing about that. If they're coming back, they're, they're not coming back as glorified saints because glorified saints can't die and God is going to allow them to be destroyed probably by Antichrist after a time, after their... Uh, their ministry has run its course. The other thing is, lots of people aren't going to suffer death. Anybody who's alive in Christ, anybody who's saved and living at the time of the rapture is just going to be translated. So those people, a large group of people, will not be required to die. So it doesn't necessarily hold that it must be Elijah and Enoch. But with that in mind, let me say this. There's a lot of symmetry that we see in, in Scripture. You know, in the Old Testament, Elijah and Enoch uh, are translated directly into heaven without suffering death. In the New Testament, there are two people who are going to be cast directly into the lake of fire without suffering death. Who are they? Antichrist and the false prophet. Yes. Antichrist and the false prophet. So there's, you know, uh, 
the way God works things out in his word for us is, is there's sometimes a great deal of symmetry that we see. But what about, what about Elijah and Moses? You know, Elijah shut up heaven that it didn't rain. Uh, Moses smote the earth with plagues. Now, one of them didn't die. The other one did. And so that raises a question. If it's appointed to man once to die and after death judgment, does that mean Moses has to die twice? So is there a violation there? Is that, is that word only generally speaking? Because really and truly, we, we don't hear about anything that happened to any of the people that Jesus raised. We know Lazarus, Jairus' daughter. Did they die again? Presumably. Uh, I think it's either Pentecost or Walvert or Chafer who is of the opinion that, that maybe they got translated, that they didn't have to die again. They just got sort of some sort of a rapture-like event. You know, took them up and it's just not recorded for us. We don't know. So there's really, there's good arguments for, for, for both of those viewpoints. But we really don't have any solid principles whereby we can say, this is who they are. You know, that the Bible does not identify them. Pretty much indicates that their exact identity is not important. Their purpose is what we need to look at. And there are some other options, um, and uh, uh, Mr. Wong goes uh, to great detail, actually Dr. Wong, I should say, goes into detail with that, um, and it could be that they are simply two tribulation age saints, the two people that get saved, and at a certain point God says, I'm going to empower you this way. That could be, could very well be. But uh, read through that article this afternoon. It makes for interesting reading. Uh, I think he does a good job at exploring the options. But here, go ahead and get back to the outline. They, that is the witnesses, they are the olive trees and the candlesticks of Zechariah 14. I believe I gave you the wrong reference there. I'll have to fix that. But chapter 4, yes, thank you. I put a 1 in front of it unnecessarily. Ezekiel chapter 4. Yeah, so... They are the olive trees and the candlesticks of Zechariah 4. Yeah, and the angel that talked with me came again and walked and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I looked, and behold, a candlestick of gold and a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, the seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. And the two olive trees by it, and one on the right side of the bowl, and one other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, Nay. I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Now I want you to skip down here to uh, verses 11. Uh, We'll start with verse 11. It says, Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these these two olive branches? 
which through the two golden pipes emptied the, uh, emptied the golden oil out of themselves. And he answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So the two anointed ones. So lots of references there. The first we see, the short-term fulfillment was Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the political leader, in the short term. But also, they're associated with the second temple. The ultimate reference is to these two witnesses in the temple of the tribulation period. So there's, again, roots back into the Old Testament, but the work for which they are set aside is preaching. It's preaching. He said they're going to prophesy. They're going to prophesy. And they're going to smite the earth. But like the prophets of old and preachers of today, they will receive harsh persecution. They're going to, folks are going to try because they don't want the message. They're not going to like the message. They're going to try to uh, come against them. And anybody that tries to hurt them is going to be killed pretty much instantaneously with fire out of their own mouth. Unlike God's men of other ages, they will have the free course to wield God's judgment as often as they will. You know, the prophets, th- think about the prophets. The prophets were told, you know, what to do. Uh, Elijah was allowed to call fire down from heaven, operate, operating in the will of God, prophesying to the people. Um, James and John tried it, and the Lord said, no, wrong time, <laughs> wrong spirit. But these here are, are able to rebuke disbelief or rejection, you know, with, with fire out of their mouth, with plagues. Who do you think you are preaching that righteousness of God to me? That's a hate crime. Oh, yeah? Boils, you know? <laughs> you know, flies. Got some lice for you. Your water's turned to blood. How about that? That's going to be a terrible time. Now, if we look here, it says in point number two, we must also note the time of death and resurrection of the witnesses. Verses 7 through 14, back over in Revelation chapter 11. It says here, in verse, beginning in verse number 7, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and, over, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, where spiritually, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where, our, where also our Lord was crucified. We're talking about Jerusalem. And they of the people and kindreds of tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. 
And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now, here's, here's something to consider. First of all, there's some discussion over exactly when these witnesses appear. There's discussion about when the witnesses appear. And I'm serious. You, I could, any, the books that I have, about half of the people who study this passage say they're going to arrive in the first half of the tribulation period. And the rest of them say they're going to arrive in the second half of the tribulation period. Now, personally, I'm going to go with the second half. And I'll explain why here in just a bit. But they're going to work throughout half of the tribulation period 1260 days or 42 day uh, 42 months of 30 days each one thing to note um, when you're talking about prophecy there's a, a prophetic year is 360 days it's not 365 days like we have today on our calendar uh, and so when he's talking about the number of days in the tribulation period he's talking about a period of time that is seven years of 360 days so uh, they have 30 day months so 42 months at 32 days, 30 days each is 1,260 days. And so that's where he's going to be, that's how he's making his calculations there. But which half of the tribulation period their ministry will occupy is debated. And, and we know that it's half of the time. We do often assume that it has to be the first half before the beast comes in and, and breaks the treaty or the second half that way. It could be that those 1260 days are somewhere you know in between but it it really when we look at the timeline it doesn't quite fit because what's it say here in verse 14 the second woe is past that's that uh, that's that sixth trumpet so there's one more trumpet which contains those seven vile judgments and so he seems to be saying that the end of their ministry kind of coincides with the end of that seventh or that sixth trumpet. So what do we do with that? And how do you get 1260 days? Because it's not 1260 days from the sixth trumpet sounding. You know, so we, we have, we, you can put it at the front, you can put it at the back. If we have 1260 days and they're dead for three and a half days, then you have that period that if it's in the second half, you have that whole second half of the tribulation period, but their resurrection doesn't come until after the return of Christ, which doesn't fit with what the people are doing because they've been there for three and a half days. They had a celebration, but they declared a worldwide holiday. That's just exactly how glad the planet was to see these guys done. They were giving gifts to each other. This was like Christmas. Hey, happy dead witnesses day. And, Here's a gift for you, and you know, and uh, probably probably twenty four hour a day, seven day a week uh, uh, camera footage, uh, you know, um, on uh, these slain witnesses, 
and they're all making merry and, and, and you've got all. So, and then they just sort of get up, look around and fly away. Uh, <laughs> here, look back at your outline, number 200, letter A. I'm going to say, go out on a limb here and say it, the second half seems the best answer. Since the Gentiles, Walvard writes, since the Gentiles are said to tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, this ill treatment better fits the second half, the latter half of the tribulation period, the tribulation week. I'm also going to say that they are witnesses and that their last act of witness may very well be their ascension. Because what did they just testify to? The fact that he's Lord over death, that he's Lord over everything, and that nothing you do can ultimately stop the Lord. So if you have a period of 1260 days, and then that last three and a half days, they're dead, and on the 12, day 1260, they get up, and they, raise, and they rise to heaven, uh, I don't, I don't see a problem there. Um, but just consider the task that they have. It doesn't really particularly say that anybody is going to listen to their prophecy. It doesn't really even say that they have any message of hope in with that. Really, their primary action seems to be Judging with fire and, and turning water into blood and stopping rain and, you know, smiting with plagues. But it may very well be, and I think probably will be, that certain people will get right with God. They will, they will come around by that. Uh, but also notice here, letter B, they cannot be harmed until they have served their purpose for being here. They can't be harmed until they've served their purpose for being here. Enemies are overcome with fire. Enemies are overcome with fire. Judgment for rejecting their message comes in the form of plagues. We must assume it's for rejecting their message. They're sent to prophesy. They're preaching to the people. Even in the minor prophets, some of the darkest minor prophets, there's always some kind of a message of hope somewhere. Many times for Israel. But... But think about the judgment of God, even upon Israel, which had, God had had it. They were going off into exile, but the Babylon was knocking at the door. It was still apparently not too late because Jeremiah was still preaching, hey, repent. Okay, not, well, then don't try to resist them when they come. Just accept it as the judgment hand of God. And they didn't listen to that either. But God is always there. He's always waiting Number three, they are resurrected after being dead three and a half days. The celebration of the dead witnesses will come to a grinding halt. Now think about all the, all the hard partying going on, the gift giving that's going on. We get the idea that not only did these guys have the potential to smite the earth, and they did, but they did <laughs> repeatedly. Uh, people, uh, perhaps the people, seeing their great power, attributed all the previous judgments to them. I think that's pretty likely. They show up on the scene here, and they, they're, they're doing all this stuff. 
uh, as the as the uh, the big the fiery mountain falls from the sky and destroys the third part of the sea as the wormwood comes and destroys the third part of the freshwater resources on earth. We see all these terrible things falling out. The demons and uh, that 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 kill with uh, that uh, that smite the earth with everything but death. It's impossible to die. And then you've got, uh, after that, a space of time where uh, demonic horsemen are killing everybody. And all of the while, the, these prophets are prophesying, these two people. Perhaps they thought all would be well again now that they were dead. There's an interesting correspondence between the number of years they will minister and the number of days they were dead. Three and a half years Dead three and a half days. There's a finality scene in their resurrection too. I can see them being resurrected and ascending to heaven on the very same day that Christ returns. I don't think that's, I don't think that's a stretch at all. But we simply don't know. Antichrist is the one who's allowed, who, who's allowed to defeat them. Answering, it is supposed, once and for all, his claim of deity. Nobody else could do it. He did. He said the, 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 the beast from the bottomless pit. Um, most people think that's a reference to uh, a, a satanically charged power that he has. The resurrection and ascension of these men will trigger an earthquake causing the death of 7,000 men. The end result is that many people will glorify the one true God. And that's really going to get on Antichrist's nerves for just a while. So you see there's some problems here. We see there's some, uh, there's some issues. As Again, in verse number 14, it says the second woe is past. Um, you know, uh, are we to take that then as their, as their uh, ascension to heaven ends the events of the seventh trumpet? Um, you know, or could it be that simply that second woe starts with the, with, with the seventh trumpet? All this has been going on, and um, uh, rather the sixth trumpet, I'm sorry. That second woe starts, and, and just the, the fact of their death and resurrection occurs at the end. That, so you see, there's, there's a chronology that's very difficult. I found another... Uh, article but, uh, about the chronology of the book of Revelation in general, but that seemed to be a bit too much to, to hand out here in one lesson. Perhaps we'll get to that later. 